Hi everyone, I'm Dominique. And I'm Adriana, and we are Survivor Sisters. Survivor Sisters is a podcast, an organization that shares the stories of sexual assault survivors to educate, empower, and inspire other survivors and their peers to take action against sexual assault. Today, we are sitting down with Kate Franklin, who is currently a senior at Northeastern University in Massachusetts. Kate is actively involved with Northeastern's chapter of Sexual Assault Resource Coalition, and she is also an intern for Jane Doe, Inc., which is a nonprofit organization based in Massachusetts that is committed to fighting sexual assault and domestic violence. She also wrote and produced a theater social change piece about rape culture and hookup culture on college campuses. And we're so excited to have Kate here today to share her story and talk about all of her advocacy work and the great things that she's doing to help fight sexual assault, specifically on college campuses, but also beyond that. So Kate, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So to dive in, and let Kate, you know, introduce herself a little bit further and share her story. Okay. <laughs> I think my story uh, starts before college, starting in high school. Um, and, you know, I didn't, I had a few like major incidents, I would say that really like makes myself classic, like makes my me identify as a survivor. Um, but I was also just really ingrained in hookup culture and uh, I was objectified and sexualized really for many years before college. Um, So starting, you know, when I was first kind of like understanding like my sexual identity, you know, like eighth, ninth grade even, um, I had this group of guy friends uh, who were kind of shaping that for me. Um, And I think looking back, they kind of took advantage of our friendship and uh, really objectified me and hypersexualized me. Um, and we had many different, that's kind of how my identity was shaped as a sexual person and also just as, you know, a young girl. And a lot of those experiences were somewhat coercive, definitely a lot of convincing, I would say. Um, But that's just kind of how I was taught what sex was. And also that, you know, my value lay in my body um, and that that was a way I could get male attention. Um, So throughout high school, um, there was definitely a strong party culture, kind of similar to like a fraternity almost. There's a lot of like random hookups, even though we had all known each other since we were little. Um, And I had a few uh, pretty, none of them were really good experiences. Um, You know, it was, I thought it was, you know, normal for like me to do XYZ sexual things with my friend, a guy friend, and then two hours later at the same party, he does the exact same things with one of my girlfriends. Like, I was just like, oh, sure, this is how things work. Um, I had a pretty forceful uh, oral sexual experience in high school, but again, I didn't think anything of it really until much later. And then in college, I just kind of 
went on adapting this identity of being, you know, the kind of this party girl. Um, and I just kind of was hurting so badly. Um, and to cope, I kind of shielded myself by becoming the, I don't give a fuck girl. Like I'm just like, I'll party and I'll drink and I'll smoke and I'll hook up with people and it doesn't matter, you know, because it felt like, okay, well, this is the role I was cast in and like, that's all I knew. And I felt trapped and it was a lot easier to kind of leave on the goggles than to deal with the reality of what was happening. And then I went to Bucknell, which is a small liberal arts school in uh, Pennsylvania. It's a very heavy party school. It's a very small school. It's very Greek. Um, There's really nothing else to do but to party. And it is a huge party school. Um, There, I kind of continued and, again, had experiences that were bad and uh, not always super consensual, but I didn't see them as being bad. I just was like, oh, this is how it is, you know, having guys, um, you know, take off a condom in the middle of us having sex without asking me was not great, but I was like, okay, you know, whatever. And then towards the end of my freshman year, I had an experience that, that really kind of jolted me out of this way of living. Um, and I don't classify it as rape. Um, I classify it as sexual assault. I know people label things differently and someone could label this experience as rape. Someone could label it as sexual assault. Someone can label it as just bad sex. Um, so it was with someone I knew from class and, you know, we went up to my room and I said repeatedly, I didn't want to have sex, but then, you know, one thing led to another and, um, we were kissing and then all of a sudden he, um, started to have sex with me and you know I it wasn't you know forceful necessarily there's this play I like that addresses this and that one of the lines is like you know I didn't expect him to ask for my permission but I didn't expect him not to either and that's kind of how this felt like I wasn't given like I'd said no earlier and then in in the moment I wasn't really given the chance to say no and then he ended up um, finishing inside of me without a condom, without asking. Um, and in that moment, like my body just knew that something was wrong. Um, and it jolted me completely out of years of being in this culture and years of feeling so worthless. Um, and it just kind of broke the dam for me. It kind of made me deal with all of these traumatic experiences that I've had. And um, that was kind of my experience with that. Um, Afterwards, I got STD testing. I took plan B. I went to an on-campus therapist, even though I, I I just cried constantly. That whole semester, honestly, it kind of, I don't even really remember it because it was just filled with so much anxiety. Um... I felt just so confused and ashamed and I just felt gross. And um, yeah, I, I went to Title IX and they were like, well, you know, we can move you out of the class. But I was like, well, I need to be in that class. Um, and they're like, well, we can send him like a letter that you don't want to see him. And I'm like, 
no, I don't like this campus is so small. I'm like, I don't want to do that. Um, you know, they didn't give the option to make him move class. So, um, yeah, so I sat in a classroom for the rest of the semester. It was a film class. So I had to be in a dark movie theater with him once a week for the rest of the semester. Um, and it was pretty horrible. And then that summer, I just, again, I was just like a blob. Like it was like, the, again, the dam had broke and like everything that I was suppressing and normalizing for myself for so long, I was reliving every single experience I'd had since I was 13 years old. Um, and then after that summer, I was really re not wanting to go back to that campus. Um, and I went back regardless. And about a week after I decided I was going to transfer universities. Um, so that was kind of a, a quick look at the story, I guess. First of all, I just want to thank you for sharing and say I'm so sorry that happened to you. Just based off your experiences with your guy friends in high school, I can kind of relate to the feelings you felt because in college it was my guy friends who were taking advantage of me and raping yeah. me. So yeah. when the dam broke for you and when you realized all these situations were bad and the way that they made you feel, mm -hmm. how did you go forward with that in mm -hmm. all aspects of your life, especially in the relationship aspects of your life, making friends with people of the other sex who have time and time again violated you. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I went back to school. Um, I very quickly realized I was going to transfer because I was just triggered everywhere on that campus um, because I had, you know, even though I, I had that, that experience with that guy, I had a million bad experiences that were non-consensual with other people who I was seeing all the time my roommates at the time like I saw on their snapchat stories that they had the person who did that to me like over for pregame like it was just traumatic overall um so I was miserable um I was just triggered everywhere and um then I actually fell in love <laughs> which um at the time was a lifeline um and looking back was definitely a tr more so of a trauma bond than real love. Um, so, but being in that relationship kind of allowed me to, because after that experience, I was basically like celibate. Like I was like, I'm not doing anything with any guys. I'm, I'm not having sex with anyone. Um, and then with my boyfriend, I was able to kind of start having sex, um, which I thought at the time was good. But looking back, I think, you know, I was, I hadn't really healed fully. So I was carrying a lot of that hype. Like I was like, I was hypersexualizing myself. He was kind of hypersexualizing me. Um, I felt very objectified and um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't all bad, but it wasn't great. So that was, that was one part of it, I guess. And then I transferred, which was huge. Um, you know, getting out of that place, removing the negative stimuli was, um, really an epic turning point in my life. And looking back, like the, the best thing I've ever done, the best decision I've ever made. Um, and similar to high school, I'm not friends with anyone of that group from high school because I, I can't be, you know, I, I don't feel like I ever could, could be. And um, because it feels like once you remove the glasses, it's hard to go back to how things were and pretend like you don't know the things you know. Um, 
so then once I transferred, um, I was making friends. I still, in terms of guy friends, I still think I was struggling a little bit just to trust men. I think I still have that. I'm still struggling with it. But then honestly, I feel like my trauma kind of shifted. Like it was like, oh, all this sexual trauma. And now it's like me dealing with my relationship and like the traumatic relationship. So then once I finally got rid of that, it felt like, okay, now my healing for myself can actually start. And I would say that was about a year ago. And in that time, I have been to therapy, which has been super, super important for me. I have, I just kind of stopped having sex. I felt like for me, I needed to just stop because I didn't have the tools yet to, and I'm still working on it, to have healthy sexual experiences. So it feels like because of that, like I, I just knew for myself that if I were to have sex with someone, I would just go back to old patterns and I would be very performative and maybe even dissociate a little bit. And I just didn't want that. So I, you know, didn't have sex with anyone. I uh, enrolled in this sacred sensual wholeness Academy, which is really awesome where we like, it was a group of women and we met and did workshops and um yeah, the other thing I think is is this play that I've written is a big part of how I've been able to heal because it's allowed me to try to help other people and make sense of it for myself and start conversations, which feels like I'm getting a little bit of the power back. Yeah, I love that you brought up all about like the context and how transferring to Northeastern from Bucknell was just like such a huge turning point, especially Mm -hmm. as you moved on to heal and start working on yourself and and all of your past traumas. It it reminded me, this is obviously different, but it reminded me of like how people with addictions, once they go back to like the same context that they were using their drug of choice or around the same people, even it kind of puts them back in that space and then they want to use again. And so context, I think, is really important psychologically because if you're surrounded by all the same things or if you're doing the same things, like for you, you said having Mm -hmm. sex, you needed to kind of take a step back from that because you felt like you would regress back to what you always did in the past, which was shaped by all these traumatic experiences and hookup culture and whatnot. And so I think that's really important and something that a lot of people may not even realize that sometimes you do have to remove yourself from a situation Mm -hmm. and that doesn't mean that you like failed or that you can't handle Mm -hmm. something because you Mm -hmm. can't see the same people or continue to be friends with people who you've had questionable experiences with. I think a lot of times people struggle with that. And so I'm glad that you spoke about that and brought that up for those people to kind of see how doing something like that is not a bad thing. And and oftentimes it can be what's best for you in that moment. And so I wanted to shift gears a little bit now that you brought up your play and talk a little bit more about what is your play? What is it about? And how did it come to be? Yeah. And I I agree what you said earlier, like, you know, that phrase, like you can't heal in the environment that broke you, right? Or something like that, Um, which might not be true for everyone. It was definitely true for me. Um, So the play came about, I was in a playwriting class. I'm a theater major. um, And I was in a playwriting class, um, maybe like over a year ago, year and a half ago. And the final assignment was write a 10 minute play using like non-realistic structure, which really just means like, have it not feel like two people like sitting on a couch in the living room talking. Um, So I just 
you know, I, I want to say like, this seems so cliche and stupid, but like, I want to say it almost like came to me in a dream, but like, I, I saw, um, Fratland just like in my head. And, um, I was wrote this play that basically, uh, spelled out the rules of, you know, going to a fraternity party, um, as if it were Candyland, because I see that there are so many rules that we all kind of like inherently follow without questioning, you know, that I think a lot of people can understand the image, you know, if you say, oh, what do women or female identifying people wear to fraternity parties? They're like, oh, like black bodysuit, cleavage, high-waisted jeans, white shoes that are like covered in mud. And it's like, how do we all know that? <laughs> like, who decided that? <laughs> um, and then, you know, all the girls dressed up, hair done, makeup done, guys are in t-shirts or guys are in jerseys. It's like, who decided this? So anyway, so I did that. Um, and I was like, hmm, I think that this has potential to be something more. So I then for my senior capstone paper and project, so our capstone, you have to do a research paper and then a, some sort of practice based project that connects to that. So I started thinking about the plays that exist on hookup culture and sexual song college campuses. And uh, in doing research, a lot of them are realistic. Um, a lot of them focus on the trial portion of it, uh, which in turn like sensationalizes that and, you know, and kind of like it feels like, oh, we're doing this because it's like the sexy narrative part of this horrible experience. And also it leaves the audience being like, oh, well, who's telling the truth, which in which reinforces victim blaming. And I was like, this is not changing anything. Um, so. I started looking more into different theatrical like mechanisms and um, without getting like too technical, um, there's a type of practice called uh, Brechtian feminist technique or theater uh, that is more aimed to enact, like to move audience members to social change. Um, so I used that and I started to work on act two, which was going to be about the actual hookup. Um, so basically, the whole play is almost a step-by-step -step guide on what happens in Greek life, what happens in hookups, because I think that a lot of times those systems and the steps uh, are kind of swept under the rug, and I think they thrive in secrecy. So I felt like it was important to create something that was engaging, that was funny, it's comedic, that um, was non-realistic, to kind of take the audience on this ride. And um, it's really funny until it's not, is kind of like the, the, the piece of the play. And there were other, a few other things that were important to me in the play. Um, so act two is all about the hookup and that each part of a hookup is, uh, like a mini game, almost in a game show. So for example, there's a game called Find My Clitoris, where the like male character has to like find the big pink exercise ball in front of him. Um, so things like that. 
And um, I knew I wanted to have there be a sexual assault. And I knew also that I wanted it to, you know, I, I, I'm interested in the gray area of rape culture and hookup culture. I think that people, and I've heard you guys talk about this on the podcast before, like people think of rape as, you know, still in this like, oh, it's a stranger. It's like violent. It's whatever, you know, and I think those things exist, but there's also a lot of uh, experiences within hookup culture that don't look like that, that are still non-consensual and horrible that so many people are dealing with. So there is an assault, but it's uh, done in a very like lyrical, non-realistic like dance. Um, which Nora Gallo actually choreographed. I know she's been on the pod too. Um, so, you know, because I, I wanted to make sure that the audience could, like literally there was no chance they could leave and be like, oh, well, she was lying because the, the thing that you would be debating is a dance. Like it's not anything, it's not a real thing. So those were important to me. And then I knew I wanted the female character to kind of like come out on top. I knew... I wanted the takeaway to be that the system is what is fucked and not any individual person. And we are all complacent to some degree, um, but blaming one another or blaming one specific fraternity or one specific person is not going to be the answer. We need to look at how the system is perpetuating these rules and these things which create an intense power differential and are create perfect battlegrounds for abuse. So that's, it's kind of a little hard to explain, but that's kind of the the basis. And I wanted um, to have conversations afterwards. So after the viewing, it's a filmed piece because of COVID. So after the streaming period, there's going to be various conversations for different audiences. So I am talking with two different fraternities. Um, My goal being how to create healthier hookups for everyone. Um, There's a talk that is for survivors specifically. There is a talk that every voice is leading about political advocacy. And then there's just a general talk back um, to just discuss the process and content a little further. That's awesome. I think that especially having the talks afterwards to kind of unpack everything that the play is talking about and actually educate people and invite them into these conversations and have people share their own experiences is really helpful because it actually instigates change within your community. So I think Mm -hmm. that's, that's amazing. Yeah, um, your play, just like from the description of what you were trying to get across, it just sounds like exactly like my school I know, because I go to a huge party school, but then also like just the gist of the whole frat life and rape culture and how they're like embedded into one another. And I Mm -hmm. think that your message that you're doing with it is just so important because like you said, a lot of the plays that you've done research on have focused on the trial aspect of it and like have instilled this sort of victim blaming of who is right, who is wrong, where the audience has to decide. And you doing this and showing it from a perspective and actually incorporating the assault into it 
and making it comedic, but also in the sense that it's not comedic. It's like almost like portraying how it's taken as a joke and how serious it actually should be. So I think that what you did is like super awesome and important. Yeah, and I think that Adriana, the reason why it resonates so much with you, it resonates with everyone because this is something, hookup culture is something that exists on all college campuses yeah, um, or even in high schools. And so that's why it's so important to talk about and also to understand that a lot of these sexual experiences that people are having, especially non-consensual experiences, are not normal. And yet they're Mm -hmm. normalized by hookup culture. Perfect example of that is just if you go up to any woman on a college campus, there are many women who experience these non-normal sexual encounters and a lot of them are non-consensual, and you'll just hear them brush it off because of the hookup culture that is so instilled in them, they don't even realize that they're being taken advantage of. And if they do realize, it's kind of like they brush it under the rug because that's what is the norm for people to brush it under the rug and let this not be as big of a thing that it is, and it needs to be talked about. So the conversational part of your um, play is also just so important too. Yeah. And I think a a part of it too is because it is so normalized by making it this like non-realistic thing, it takes what's normal and twists it a little bit to make it seem like something different. Um, And one thing I wanted to touch on is because it's so normalized and I felt this too, sometimes I'm like, even still, I'm like, can I even like label myself a survivor? Like I almost, I was talking about this in therapy around my play. I'm like, I kind of have imposter syndrome of feeling like, I don't know, like I see all these stories that feel so much worse, quotes, you know. Uh, you know, I look back and I'm like, well, I wasn't like pushing him off of me and like I wasn't, you know, doing all these things. But, and that, and then I take a step back. I'm like, well, that is the culture that I am now questioning my own experiences and feeling invalid because they don't meet some quota of harm they don't fit a representation of what we are meant to think rape is yeah I just want to like put that out because I don't I don't see that like often like but I feel like an I feel that imposter syndrome about being a survivor like pretty Mm -hmm. pretty frequently especially with this play coming out I'm like I don't know like I feel like I've like staked my whole like personal and political and social identity and artistic identity on this thing and that reinforced to me why it's so important because I'm like the culture is so ingrained in all of us and me um, that I can look at my experiences and and question if they're bad enough to be labeled as assault and that is like so twisted Mm -hmm. Um, yeah yeah um, definitely it's so ingrained and I like that you brought up the quote-unquote like people have had it like worse because I see that. I've seen that in the Title IX guidelines too, where they define the severity of your assault based on how much trauma was inflicted Mm -hmm. onto you. So in my case specifically, they were like, oh, there was no weapon used against you, like no physical weapon used against you. So therefore the sentence can be lessened. It's just so crazy that we do have this standard of assault where people who are penetrated, like even just with fingers are like, Oh, like that's not even rape, but it is Mm. a penetration is, and it is isn't a sexual assault. And 
they say, oh, people have had it so much worse than me. Well, no, everyone experiences things differently and it all affects us the same and it's all terrible to go through. Yeah, exactly. I think that there's just this narrative that if you haven't been seriously harmed or if it's not some stranger, you know, in a dark alleyway holding you at gunpoint or knife point and threatening to kill you and threatening your life that somehow what you experience isn't traumatic, but Mm -hmm. that's just not the case. And that's not the reality for the majority of people who are raped or sexually assaulted. There, It's not yeah. this big story that you kind of hear about on the news or on social media, how this poor girl was, her life was threatened. And usually it's by people who you know and by yeah. people who you trust. And it just kind of shows how there's like this disconnect between what society views as rape, almost as what is acceptable as rape versus what actually is rape and what that reality is. And so it's important that we kind of dismantle that. Um, And hookup culture is a huge, huge part of that. Again, like we discussed before, how just how it normalizes these experiences that make us go, huh, like, what was that? Like, that didn't make me feel good. And yet you're not as quick to label it as, oh, I was raped, I was assaulted. And and oftentimes, like Kate, like how you said, you almost feel like an imposter, like, oh, well, what people are telling me is rape and and what other people do experience. Because of course, these violent accounts of rape are reality. I mean, Rachel Brooks, who we just had on last time, you know, this was her reality. But again, that doesn't take away from other people who experience something like that in a different way. Yeah. And I think for me, what has like helped me kind of, and I'm still like dealing with all of this. Like, I feel like uh, I'm I'm still growing and I'm still learning in all of this. But in terms of like feeling like, oh, my experience wasn't bad enough, like the one thing and I kind of discovered this when I was journaling it, but I feel like a survivor, like I feel like I survived something. And that's really all that matters. Because if you look at the narratives around sexual assault, even in those horrible violent cases half the time you know look at like brock turner he got what three months sentence so you're in everyone is internalizing like okay so even in that case my story still isn't really validated by people um by the criminal system by the news by schools everything but what has helped me kind of ground is like i i feel like I've survived something and I felt it in my body. Like our bodies know so much more than our, than our minds ever will. 100%. I think that feeling that way is normal. I think you can't put a label on how someone is supposed to feel or how they're not supposed to feel when you go through something like that. Everyone reacts differently to trauma. That's something that we touched on in a previous episode with my former professor and clinical psychologist where she talks about bodily responses to trauma, normal, what's a normal response to trauma, spoiler alert, there is no normal response to trauma, everyone (laughs) responds differently. And that's something that we wanted to do here with Survivor Sisters is to share these different stories and how people kind of heal and uh, of course their advocacy work and things like that, but also just normalizing these narratives and just kind of the reality of sexual assault on college campuses and in the world and how you're not alone and that there's other people who probably experience something very similar to you, if not 
basically the same thing that you did. There's always going to be at least one other person who has had that uh, experience and you can find common ground with them. And yeah, so I just wanted to touch more on your advocacy work because you're involved in quite a bit with different organizations, with your school, and also just in general. So first, let's talk about Sexual Assault Resource Coalition at Northeastern University. How did you come to be involved with that? What Mm -hmm. is kind of the mission of this organization? Yeah, so a lot of my time in Northeastern was spent just like really immersed in the theater community. Um, It takes up a lot of time. So I knew about SARC because also like a friend of a friend was the president, like a friend from home's friend from school was the president. So I attended a few meetings and um, but I wasn't really able to be a part of it. And then with COVID and everything, like they, I saw that they were having e-board elections. So I, I ran for position. And so now I've been a member, you know, since the summer, which has been awesome. The mission is really just to help survivors and uh, make changes on the campus. So in my time there, I've been working with the Title IX office, you know, with all of the Title IX changes that were had to be made. Now, hopefully, will be work to reverse because of the recent election. Thank God. Bye, Betsy. Uh, (laughs) um, so, but before that, we knew that, um, and they're still going to be it because they were made into law. But anyway, uh, working with the Title IX office to come up with a more robust and, uh, functional and like potentially restorative and productive informal resolution policy, because the formal policy is now pretty horrible, pretty cruel with the cross-examination. So, I worked with the Title IX office to write the informal resolution policy and try to lay the groundwork to like potentially have like a restorative justice-based center for these cases. Because I know in my case, I would have really liked having options and I had zero. So that's one thing. Also, in the time that I've been there, I helped create and use Speak Out, which is an account that allows people from Northeastern to anonymously post their survivor stories, um, which I see so many universities doing. I feel like during like the summer, there was like a boom of them, which is so, so awesome. And um, yeah, just working with survivors and, you know, trying to make sure that the Title IX office has a survivor's perspective in the room when they're making these changes. So I meet with the Title IX director biweekly, which is great because I think often there's things that they don't think about necessarily. Like, you know, I was like, okay, so say there is a cross-examination after the survivor decides to go to the formal process. I'm like, can we provide like a care package, like a personalized care package or something for them, because I'm like, what a horrible process that you have to do alone, you know, things like that, that I don't know if they would think of, or, you know, with all this advisor stuff, you know, someone could bring in a fancy lawyer to trying to urge the school to like set up something with a company, you know, a law firm or have some sort of money set aside to like have people have the option to get, get legal support, they need it or whatever. So things like that. And yeah, so that's that's been my work there. And it's been it's been really nice to be in community with other people who are like ad- advocates uh, in this work. Just the work that you're doing, because I have been through the Title IX process and it is such a grueling process. And even 
these like little suggestions that you make to the Title IX officials and the work you're doing is it would cause so much improvement in the process. And I have to wonder for myself, what if like this, like what if you were here with my Title IX process, like the things that survivors can do to change, it is incredible. And I think you're doing amazing work with an office that faces probably a lot of critical and negative backlash for the amount of disjustice that survivors seem to face when going through the process. Yeah. So you're an intern for Jane Doe, Inc. I obviously, we want to hear more about that and also any similarities or differences that you see working with them versus working in the Title IX office and just the whole gist of your advocacy work on the level of being an intern? Yeah. Uh, So I started with them in September. And so they're the state coalition for sexual and domestic violence, you know, prevention, education, advocacy work, whatever. So uh, every state has a coalition. So they're Massachusetts coalition. So um, it runs a a little bit differently than a nonprofit because they kind of are like the epicenter for like a bunch of different programs and organizations in different local, like different local organizations who work to end the same problems. So it's been really good. I have been able to learn more about domestic violence, I think, uh, because my main goal with this internship was to kind of like zoom out. I think that, you know, I spend so much time in preparation for my paper and the play and just my own personal experiences reading so much literature about hookup culture and sexual assault on college campuses. Um, And I read so many amazing books uh, that really, really helped me and helped put things in perspective. I really recommend Girls in Sex and Boys in Sex by Peggy Orenstein. I don't know if you've read them, but they're amazing. But anyway, so I I just felt like I needed to kind of zoom out because I'd been so like hyper-focused and I felt pretty well-versed in like campus issues, but I wanted to learn more about sexual assault on a, like a wider scale. And I really didn't know too much about domestic violence. So I've been helping them with like some awareness campaigns. Um, I've been working on releasing um, a press release for like these grants that they do. And um, it's been really cool working there because I've been able to also attend different workshops that they do. Specifically, I just uh, attended a few lunch and learns around um, transformative and restorative justice for domestic and sexual violence, which I'm really interested in. So that's been really cool. It's just been a different experience, like being around, you know, not that like everyone who works there, like is a survivor, like, I don't, I don't really know. But like, it's definitely, um, I've gotten to talk to a few of them. And like, it is just nice to kind of have that common ground, um, and kind of share that identity in the workspace because I feel like oftentimes you know in our society sex is stigmatized and it's hard to talk about and is considered taboo so sexual violence is like a whole other beast Um, and I think that a lot of times when I go into professional settings it feels like I have to kind of like mask the part of myself that identifies as a survivor when that part of my identity feels very strong and feels like a big part of like kind of my compass and how I navigate in this world. So it's nice to have a professional setting where that 
part of myself feels invited to enter the space and really step in and step forward and be really dominant in how I come to work and how I do the work and what things I'm interested in. And yeah, it's been really, really a good learning experience. And there's so much more that I can learn. And, you know, I've like just started to kind of become an advocate in this work. So it's, it's nice to be a little bit more versed now and to start my education around different topics that go beyond campuses. Yeah, I think when we were first creating Survivor Sisters, particularly Survivor Sisters, similar to your play, um, came about through my school as a project Mm -hmm. for this program that I was a part of. And I like how you talked about how working with Jane Doe, that it allows you to kind of take a step back where you're really focused on sexual assault on college campuses, but that's just one piece of the puzzle here. And that was something that I recognize as well. There's so many different parts of the problem. There's so many, it exists within so many different contexts. And a lot of times it's similar, a lot of times it's different. But one thing that exists between across all, across the entire spectrum is that it's all just about like silencing of survivors. And I think, like you said, working with an organization where you feel empowered to be a survivor and that you don't have to like hide that part of you where in society we kind of expect survivors to take a step back and to not share that they were raped or they were sexually assaulted or whatnot because that makes other people feel uncomfortable when I mean this is just the reality of the situation and we shouldn't have to hide this part of ourselves that shapes who we are and who we will be in the future. Yeah, I think it just kind of goes back to what you said about like sex being stigmatized, but also violence being stigmatized um, or even normalized, if it could be both, I don't know. Um, but I think these things make people uncomfortable and that's why we, as a society, try to shut it off. And I think advocacy work is just so important. And I think it's really important for a lot of survivors for healing as well. And just kind of seeing that what they're going through is normal and that they're not alone. That Other people have gone through this with them and that there are people out there who believe them and want to fight for them. And they kind of, kind of step into that role to be there for other people as well. So to wrap this up, I would just love to hear from you. What do you hope for the future for you as you continue to heal and work on yourself after all the trauma that you've experienced? I think with my play, I really found what I'm passionate about, which is using art and something that I feel trained in and educated in to bring about change in this really meaningful way to me and to have conversations um, you know, my biggest hope would be to post COVID, whenever that will be, to just go to campuses around the country, touring this play, having conversations, talking with survivors, talking with fraternity members. And my, my biggest hope is that we can not only have a world in which sexual assault becomes, you know, extinct, or becomes not the norm, but to also have it be that good sex, communicative sex, healthy sex can can rise to be the standard. Because right now in hookup culture, 
we at best are tolerating bad sex and at worst are tolerating rape. And that feels both bad. Um, and I just think there's more pleasure and connection and intimacy to be had. And in terms of myself, I hope that I can infuse that idea into my own life with both, both sexual and not, you know, I think that just in general, I think sex kind of puts a magnifying glass on all of the things that are lurking behind the surfaces normally, you know, I think sex allows people's like deepest insecurities to rise to the surface. It demands communication, which a lot of people lack. It demands connection, which is really hard at a time when social media is so rampant in our lives and um, we're so disconnected from one another and ourselves in the world. So I really just hope that this work can transfer into my personal life and that I continue to heal from my experiences, understand my experiences, continue to learn to love the younger version of myself that had to go through these things um, that I blamed for a really long time and just really help other people and help other survivors. Every time I see a young girl on the street, I just want to like hold them and like, you know, just like protect them so fiercely, which obviously that's not a way to <laughs> exist in the world. I would be crazy, but also like that's, we need to go deeper in prevention Sex education needs to be revolutionized. There needs to be media literacy around porn. All of the things. There's so many things. I just want to connect with other people who want the same things and take over the world and dismantle the patriarchy. Well said. <laughs> yeah, well said. <laughs> just, just so doable. I, I think I can hit that by like May 2025. <laughs> <laughs> kidding. Fingers crossed. All right. Thank you, Kate, so much for coming on the podcast and being so open and mm -hmm. vulnerable and sharing your story. Uh, we hope that you guys learned a lot from Kate and that you really heard that her story resonates with you and that we start to look inwards um, towards ourselves and how we contribute to hookup culture and also just how it exists in general. It's like this like institution almost um, and what we can do to dismantle that from the inside because I think it starts with everyone. You know, like Kate said mm -hmm. earlier, kind of we're all in some way complacent within that. And so it's important that we recognize that and start to make healthy consensual sex the standard and not these yep. experiences that make us feel icky and uncomfortable and violated so thank you so much again kate you can check out her play called it's called rules of play college edition on instagram i believe the at is rules underscore of underscore play you can follow kate on instagram at kate franklin underscore and keep up with all the work that she's doing her play, I believe, is available to be streamed on November 16th through the 22nd, and there'll be more information on those Instagram pages, and we will, of course, link where you can watch the play and participate in those after um, discussions. You can listen to other episodes of Survivor Sisters, anywhere that podcasts can be streamed. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. We post on YouTube. You can follow us at Survivor Sisters on Instagram and at Survivor Sisters Podcast on Facebook. We can't thank you enough for listening and tuning in and supporting our show and supporting the survivors that we have on and just showing 
other survivors um, that they're not alone and that we are a platform for them to share their stories and use their voice in a positive way and take it back from all the people who try to silence them. With that, we will not be silenced. <laughs>